Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Section 11 of David Hume's Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding is entitled Of Providence and a Future State. And the main interest in this section about the possibility of a future state has to do with this notion of justice. And so if we think that there is a providential ordering of things, then what we should see is some sort of justice in a substantive sense, either in the arrangement of the universe as we experience it, or put off to some future state. And Hume is actually going to be combating these by placing arguments in the mouth of his friend and Epicurus, who his friend is giving voice to, you could say. But these are actually Hume's own arguments. So the first place to look in this is this discussion of the Epicureans. And the, you know, this is Epicurus defending himself to the Athenians. And he says, I deny a providence, you say, and supreme governor of the world who guides the course of events and punishes the vicious with infamy and disappointment and rewards the virtuous with honor and success in all of their undertakings. And this is indeed the way some people view providential ordering of the universe by some good and just, actually superlatively good and just God. And the Epicureans rejected that. The Epicureans, by the way, didn't think there were no gods. They just thought that the gods don't care about human beings. And that's why the gods are so happy because they just do their God things off in some other place. And they leave us here in this world, which is, you know, largely governed by interactions of matter and then randomness and stuff like that. So, you know, the Epicureans get charged as being atheists, as denying providence, and they actually do deny providence. They don't think that there's any sort of intelligent arrangement of the world other than perhaps in human affairs. But Epicurus, at least in this thing, is saying that doesn't really matter because you can still have a commitment to all the things that people who claim that they care about justice and think that there could be reward and punishment, all the things that they say matter. So he says, I don't deny the course itself of events, which lies open to everybody's inquiry and examination. I, I'm fine with looking experientially at the world and reasoning from that. And what can I actually reason about in human affairs? He goes on and he says, I acknowledge that in the present order of things, virtue is attended with more peace of mind than vice. So, you know, you're not going to get some absolute reward for being virtuous, but there's a tendency, if you are virtuous, if you're behaving like a decent person, the virtues that the Epicureans recognize were the same four cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, temperance, courage, that the Stoics or the Platonists and also the Aristotelians in their own way acknowledged as well. So virtue, it's not its own reward, but it does have a tendency to, you could say, pay off. And vice, you know, is going to make you uneasy of mind, right? He says virtue is attended with more peace of mind than vice, meets a more favorable reception from the world, and also friendship. 
friendship. Friendship is the chief joy of human life. I mean, historically, the Epicureans did think this, right? Epicurus himself says that friendship is a great, valuable thing. And moderation, he says, is the only source of tranquility and happiness. He goes on, he says, I never balance between the virtuous and vicious course of life. I'm sensible that to a well-disposed mind, every advantage is on the side of the former, the virtuous life. So even if you don't believe in a providentially organized universe, you can still behave like a good person. You can be virtuous. You can cultivate friendships. You can engage in moderation. You can be happy. So that's one important thing that he's pointing out. What if you take the other point of view, though, and you say, well, there is a providential ordering of things. You know, God cares about the universe and sets things up in the right way. So if we affirm that there is divine providence in the world, then we have to ask, you know, is there indeed a supreme distributive justice in the universe? And he says, well, I mean, if I did believe that, then I would expect the reality that I'm experiencing to be at least a little different than I'm actually noticing it to be. He says, I ought to expect some more particular reward of the good and punishment of the bad beyond the ordinary course of events. And then he says, I find here the same fallacy which I have before endeavored to detect. And what is this fallacy? arguing from effect, what it is that we see in the universe, to a cause. So in this case, we think that there's some order, some justice, some organization of things. We argue to a supreme being who is the cause of that. And then we start attributing all sorts of other things that we're not actually experiencing to that divine being. And then we read that back in to the universe, um, in effect, imagining things that aren't really there. So he says that you persist in imagining if we grant the divine existence for which you earnestly contend, you may safely infer consequences from it and add something to the experienced order of nature by arguing from the attributes that you ascribe to your gods. And this is a, what he says, a gross sophism because you don't actually know that much about God because all you've got are the effects that you can see in the universe. So this is a problem here. And, and he, why is he saying this? Hume doesn't think that there is any providential ordering by a God, but this is to show how logically, in his view, it would be disputable if not fallacious. There's another possibility. This is one that many religious people do take, which is to claim that there is some sort of afterlife. And the universe itself doesn't give us complete justice, but in that afterlife, everything is going to be reckoned and rectified, you could say. So he says that, what must a philosopher think of those reasoners who, instead of regarding the present scene of things as the sole object of their contemplation, so far reverse the whole course of nature as to render this life merely a passage to something further, a porch which leads to a greater and vastly different building, a prologue which serves only to introduce the peace and give it more grace and propriety. What are we talking about there? This is a very fancy way of talking about heaven and hell or some sort of afterlife where there'd be a judgment. And he says, where do philosophers derive their idea of the gods from their own conceit and imagination? Surely, right? And he says, we can actually think about this mere possibility and hypothesis by considering three different possibilities. 
If there is distributive justice, as he says, are there any marks of distributive justice in the world? If you answer in the affirmative, if you say, yeah, the world is fair, good people get good outcomes, bad people get bad outcomes. Well, then what the hell do you need an afterlife to provide that stuff for, right? You're already getting it in this present life. What if you say, well, no, no, that's it's not a fair world. There isn't distributive justice or whatever else you want to call it. People getting rewarded or punished in this world. That's exactly why heaven and hell or some sort of afterlife where judgment takes place matters so much. If he says, if you reply in the negative, I conclude you have no reason to ascribe justice in our sense of it to the gods. Why? Because you're arguing from what we observe in the natural world to the cause, the gods or God. But if it's not there in the natural world, then you can't ascribe it to God. So if there, even if there is a God, uh, the God is not going to be just and not fix things in the afterlife. What if you say yes and no? What if you adopt what Hume calls a medium between affirmation and negation, saying that the justice of the gods at present exerts itself in part, but not in its full extent? And then he says, well, I answer that you have no reason to give it any particular extent, but only so far as you see it at present exert itself that is in the universe. So putting these two together, yes and no, is not going to get you what you're looking for. So this is a pretty strong argument that he's providing here. And, you know, they go on a little bit further in this, this discussion. And then Hume suggests that maybe there could be like an argument from design and his friend combats that. And he points something out that is very important, both in, you could say, an epistemological and a moral sense. He says, there's an infinite difference of the subjects between human beings and God. God, we can't really know much about the divine infinite being because we don't have experience that we can analogize from. You know, we can't just use human beings or anything. So how much goodness and justice can we actually attribute to the deity as much as we actually see in the world? And maybe that's not an awful lot. You know, he says, as the universe shows wisdom and goodness, we infer wisdom and goodness. As it shows a particular degree of these perfections, we infer a particular degree of them precisely adapted to the effect we examine. But further attributes or further degrees of the same attributes, we can never be authorized to infer, supposed by any rules of just reasoning, greater good produced by this being must still prove a greater greater degree of goodness. A more impartial distribution of rewards and punishment must proceed from a greater regard to justice and equity. Now, if we can't actually see this in the world, then why are we attributing it to God about whom, if he exists, we don't really know much of anything and we cannot analogize from human beings because human affairs are not analogous to divine affairs and human beings are not analogous to God. So, you know, he goes on and he says, this is the, why we make this mistake, right? He says that we consider ourselves as in the place of the supreme being and we conclude that he will on every occasion observe the same conduct which we ourselves in a situation would have embraced as reasonable and eligible. And he says, you know, that's really an illegitimate way to reason. Why? 
He says, it must evidently appear contrary to all rule of analogy to reason from the projects and intentions of men to those of a being so different and so much superior. In human nature, there is a certain experienced coherence of designs and inclinations, right? So we can, as he pointed out in a previous section, we can argue from the human beings that we know here to what it is like in other cultures or other times. We cannot do that with a being that is so radically different, as we assume, from ourselves. So, you know, that kind of demolishes a lot of people's approaches to claiming that there is some sort of well-distributed justice because we know God is super, super just. If Hume is right about this, and, you know, it's kind of an open question whether he is in his reasoning, well, then we wouldn't be able to ascribe that to God. Now, he does close this on an interesting note. He says, this is him talking to his friend. There is one circumstance which you seem to overlook. Though I should allow your premises, I must deny your conclusion. You conclude that religious doctrines and reasoning can have no influence on life because they ought to have no influence, never considering that men reason not in the same manner that you do, but draw many consequences from the belief of divine existence and suppose that the deity will inflict punishments on vice and bestow rewards on virtue beyond what appear in the ordinary course of nature. Whether this reasoning of theirs be just or not, it is no matter that its influence on their life and conduct must still be the same. What is Hume actually saying there? Lots of people are terrible reasoners and accept all sorts of ideas from, you know, religious doctrines or philosophies that they have no business, if they're being truly reasonable, accepting. Well, people do, in fact, do that. And so all these reasonings that we have that would say, well, you can't actually show that there's a providence or claim that there's a providence. Most people don't worry about that at all. They think that there is, and they're going to behave that way. So if that keeps the honest people honest, so to speak, Hume doesn't see a problem with that. It's not the best basis for good behavior or you know proper motivations, but it is how many people do in fact behave. And so we see Hume coming to his usual skeptical conclusions about these sorts of things. He attacks and perhaps, you know, if you buy into his reasonings, demolishes the arguments that most people tend to make. But he says eh, that doesn't actually have that great effect on how people do in fact believe and behave. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.